Welcome to the Dwelling Podcast. We're so glad you tuned in. Our hopes is that this message inspires you and builds your faith today. I want to I wanna welcome up Wes Pickering today. Come on, y'all give, him a, give it up for Wes. Wes and his wife Hannah are here um, all the way from the great city of Nashville. Uh, Wes came a couple years ago and led a um, more conference for us. Wes is a dear friend of us and, and of this house, and, uh, and we just bless you and thank you for being here. Man, we love you. So good to be here. So good to be here. Good morning. You know, it feels different in here, and it's because of the prayer rooms. Like, it feels different than it did two years ago. Um, it's, it's funny when you make space and that's all, that's all you're doing. It, you don't have to come with an agenda. You don't have to come with a five-step plan for what you're going to accomplish. If you just make space for the presence of God, like he finds a place to rest, and then he moves. And um, so this morning, I know you guys have been in the book of James all month. Have you enjoyed being in the book of James? Yeah? Yeah. I love the book of James because it's so practical. Um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, hated the book of James. He, he didn't want it. When he translated the Bible into German, he didn't want to include it um, because it was challenging to his theology. Martin Luther got a revelation that nobody earns their way into salvation. And we're, we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ who has accomplished everything for us and there's nothing left to accomplish. And you can't, you can't follow the rules and qualify for eternity. And he recognized that. But then, then he would read James and James would say things like James chapter two, you're not just justified by faith, it's also your works because Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, but how did he believe God? He was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Like he followed it up with his actions and faith without works is dead. And it almost seems like in the language that James and Paul directly contradict each other, but it's the, it's the frailty of human language that we're trying to describe a God who's eternal and vast and and his attributes are so all-encompassing that we end up having to recycle words to describe him, and we use the same words to describe two different things. So where Paul is talking about nobody earns their way in, you have to put your faith in Jesus, and that's the only way to salvation. Nobody earns their way in. James is saying, that's true, but faith always has action or you can't call it faith. Faith always has movement to it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, is what Paul's language says. So Paul understood the same thing. Faith is substantive, right? And James makes that explicit, but if you don't understand the difference between, because what Paul says is that nobody is justified by works of the law. He doesn't say that you shouldn't have works. He says that nobody's justified by works of the law. In other words, rule keeping doesn't justify you. Jesus justifies you. But the thing that proves that you have faith in Jesus is that 
once you encounter him in that exchange of love, you obey him. You can't say that you have faith in God without obeying him. James says even the demons do that. And so I love the book of James because it's almost like a practical little epistle to the ones who have now that you have put your faith in Jesus and this is who you are now, how should you live? And so we've gone through this journey or you guys have gone through this journey. I've been reading James along with you of he sets up this theme of faith and he walks through an exploration of what are the practical outworkings of saying I have faith. And my wife likes to call James the, the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's, there's so much wisdom packed into every little line and you can spend time camping out on every little line. But this morning I wanna to present to you the idea that James isn't a set of disjointed ideas. It's a very unified letter together. And, and as we read the word together, I, I want to encourage you to not switch modes from where we just were in worship. We do that a lot in church. We, we come in, we worship God, and we're in it, and we're aware of the presence of God. And then all of a sudden, the music stops, and our heart posture somehow changes, and we go from being connecting with God from here to only trying to connect here and God wants you to love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind. He does want you to love him. But it's not a different heart posture than what you were doing five minutes ago, right? Jesus chose to be identified as the word made flesh. He chose to be wrapped up in his identity with this right here. He's the living word. And so when we open the scripture, every time we open it, we have the opportunity like Mary of Bethany to sit at the feet of Jesus and choose the better thing. We have the opportunity to sit at the feet of wisdom personified and learn from him. And so in this moment, as we get ready to read the word, I wonder if you would just go back to that place of worship where without needing to get anything out of the moment, you're just honoring him for who he is, honoring him for what he's already done. And I know that God has incredible plans for us even this morning. He wants to pour out wisdom and strength and healing and hope and restoration and redemption on us. But if he never did anything for us, what he's already done is enough. I wonder if you would tune your, tune your heart and the eyes of your heart back to his face and look into those eyes that are so kind, so understanding, the kind of eyes that look through you. There's no pretense. You can't be fake around him. There's no point in being fake around him because he sees through it. He knows that's not who you are. And when you're with him, you know it's not who you are either. And there's no, there's no choice but to be honest with him. Look into his eyes that look like they know secrets, that look like they know joys that are still to be discovered. I see the, the, the corners of his mouth turned upward. 
Jesus, you're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy. Thanks for letting us gather with you. Thanks for letting us be in your presence. Jesus, it's easy to draw near to you. It actually is easy. I don't know if you've been in a place where, or a season in your life where you feel like it's so hard to access the presence of God. I know he's there. I've experienced him in the past. Actually, I've been in a season like that where there are days where it's just hard to sense his presence, but actually, as soon as you stop and gaze into him, he's right there. If you draw near to him, he draws near to you. And even if you can't feel the emotion of that right now, there's something deep that God has implanted inside your very being, your soul, the core of who you are that knows he is with you in this moment. So Jesus, we honor you for that. We honor you for that. Amen. Amen. See, that's how I, that's how I want to approach this. I don't want to approach this as an abstract intellectual endeavor. And I want to love God with my intellect. I'm in seminary right now, loving God with my intellect. But I don't want that to be separate from love itself. So if you would turn with me to James chapter 5. James is so wild. Um, I think we've got it set to start at verse 13, but it's at the top of my page and I can't ignore it. Let's go back one verse to 12 because he says, above all. And the statement that he's about to make is so funny to me. Above all, brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no so that you won't fall under judgment. I think it's hilarious that after everything that James just said in his letter, above all, don't swear oaths. Like what a funny thing to harp on at the end, I've, I've told you all these things about faith, about how it's important that your faith is backed up with action. I've told you all these things about humility. I've told you all these things about not showing favoritism, but above all, don't swear oaths. <laughs> like why, why are you saying that? Why does that stand out as the most important thing? And I don't know what, the, the cultural practice of the day was and the churches that he was addressing, but it tells me something about the heart of God because the difference between letting your yes be yes and your no be no and swearing an oath is that an oath has a punishment attached to it if I don't follow through. And he's actually letting us know that the heart of God is not to punish you when you don't make the grade. And so when you say things like, oh, I swear on my family, you know, and you read that kind of thing throughout the, the scriptures, there's actually a, a, 
a, a story, a tragic story in the book of Judges where a leader swears that if God will see him through whatever walks out of his house first, he'll sacrifice. And it's tragic and it's not the heart of God. But then you've attached this punishment to it. And God's saying, no, 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 that's not my heart. You don't need the, the, the pathway to faith and exercising faith is not to manipulate me by making promises that if you don't back it up, I punish you. That's not the heart of God. That's not what faith looks like. You don't have, you know, I love the show Survivor. It's, it's kind of a, I don't even feel guilty about it. It's just a pleasure. <laughs> um, but on that show sometimes, in order to manipulate someone, they'll make a, they'll swear an oath, right? And they'll actually do things like, I swear on my family, on my kids. And they're like, well, no, who, well, who would do that? Now I trust this guy. And then that guy would turn around and stab somebody in the back. And it makes me cringe when I watch that because I'm like, you don't understand what happens in the spirit realm when you do stuff like that. It's not the heart of God. It's not just empty words. He goes all the way through like, please be careful what comes out of your mouth. And so when he says, above all, brothers and sisters, don't swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no so that you won't fall under judgment. He's letting you know the heart of God, as we read earlier, is that mercy triumphs over judgment. Why don't you live in this mercy that you've been afforded instead of heaping judgment upon yourself to get ahead? Does that make sense? And then he proceeds into verse 13. And, you know, our English Bibles have these little section headers and everything's nicely divided with verses and chapters and all of those things. But if you start to read these things as connected ideas, because when James wrote his letter, he didn't write, okay, verse 13. Somebody else did that so it'd be easier to find. And so if you connect verse 12 to verse 13, he's giving you a clue about the heart of God that actually makes all of this work. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. And that word save, in case you're wondering, is the word, the Greek word sozo, which means to save, to heal and to deliver. It's not just save like, oh, you get your salvation, but your body's still in bondage. The woman with the issue of blood reached out and touched the hem of his garment and she was immediately sozoed. So it's the same word that's used there. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. 
There's so much packed into that little paragraph. I wanna, I wanna talk about, because I love healing, I love teaching healing, but not because it's just a fun activity. It is a fun activity and we'll do it this morning. It'll be great and Jesus will heal bodies this morning. But I love talking about healing and teaching healing because it, it's a little microcosm of how the kingdom works. There's a reason why Jesus sent his disciples out two by two and their first assignment as disciples of Jesus was go heal the sick. Okay, boys, you've been welcomed in to be my disciples. You've seen me for a couple days now. Now you go two by two and do something utterly impossible. And we think of healing like advanced level Christianity. Like you've gotta, you've gotta spend a thousand hours in the prayer room before you can get the anointing and you gotta have, you gotta have the right anointed person lay hands on you and you gotta have an angel that blows kisses over your crib when you're a baby and you have to be God's man of power for the hour and it's really not like that. He, he says the prayers of a righteous person are very effective. Well, who's righteous? Right. I'm glad you guys know your identity in Christ. It's not about your righteousness that you had before you were in Christ. It's that you've placed your trust. See, this is why Martin Luther should have loved the book of James. It's that you've placed your trust in Jesus and your faith has changed your behavior. And now, because you're covered in the righteousness of Jesus and he makes it as if you've never sinned, now, when I pray, it has the same effective nature as Jesus himself praying. That's what it's about. He's the righteous one. He lives inside of me. First John chapter five says, this is how we'll know and have confidence on the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. It's not as he is, so are we going to be one day when we get to heaven. It's as he is, so are we in this world. And so who's the righteous person? I'm the righteous person. Praise God. Right? And the prayers of a righteous person are very effective. Very effective. And so he's giving this example of healing because it's a demonstration of what he's been talking about the whole time, where faith actually works. Faith actually works. So let's look at this because it actually undoes a few misconceptions and problems that have crept into our theology and church, especially as people who believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today, that God never stopped being a miraculous God. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church. They are to pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person. The Lord will raise him up. If he's committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Okay. There's a preacher named Curry Blake who calls the bad theologies that slip in sacred cows. Can we slaughter some sacred cows today? And that term comes from, there are places in the world where Cows are revered as the reincarnated ancestors, and so we don't kill them because we might be kill, killing Aunt Susie if we do that. And so there will be people starving, literally starving in the street and fat cows walking through the street. 
But instead of starving while there's a fat cow there, let's slaughter the sacred cow and have a feast. Can we do that this morning? Okay. What is your responsibility if you're sick? According to this. Pray. And if that doesn't work, call the elders, right? I love that because it makes your job really simple. Now, a lot of times we think, oh man, if I've been dealing with sickness, well, then I have to go on spiritual WebMD and figure out what the heck have I been doing wrong. I call it spiritual dumpster diving. You go looking for all the yuck and there surely there must be something somewhere that I did somewhere that is giving this thing permission to stay. You know, I love to pray for the sick in public. If I just kind of have a rule, if you tell me that you're not feeling good, I will stop right then and there and offer to pray for you. But you know who struggles with that out in public is Christians, especially in the South. Like you tell somebody, I'd love to pray for you. Can I pray for you? Oh, that's okay, honey. I pray every day, you know? And I'm like, I could pray for an atheist because the atheist is just entertained by it. Like, okay, you know? And guess what? The atheist gets healed, but, this, but the, the little church lady struggles with it. But if, it, if you're the sick person, all you're, all you're supposed to do is go ask for prayer. That's it. Now, whose job is it to pray the prayer of faith? Wh whose job? Y'all going to have to preach with me this morning. It's who's, what are, look, what, look at what it says. Look at what it says. He should call for the elders of the church and who? Elders, they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick person. If you're sick, guess what? God has made it really easy. It's not your job to get yourself healed. Guess what? You can have faith. Jesus would highlight it. If he saw someone get healed on their own faith, he would stop and say, hey, your faith made you well. And he would commend them. But that was the exception to the rule. The multitudes got healed by filing, and Jesus would touch them. And every single, and it says, they would all leave healed. You could, I could take you through Matthew, and it was like, he went here and everyone was healed. He went there and everyone was healed. He went there and everyone was healed. And what you won't read not one time Anywhere in the Gospels is that Jesus ever failed or he ever turned anyone away. What you won't find is that he ever said, oh, you've got unrepentant sin in your life. You've got to go take care of that first and then I can heal you. He never said, oh, you've got a generational curse that we need to take you through a four hour inner healing session first and then you can get healed. He never does stuff like that. And yet those things have crept into the culture of church. And have you ever heard somebody say like, you didn't get healed because you didn't have enough faith? It's not your job in that moment. It's the prayer's job. It's the elder's job at that Curry Blake's church. He won't even 
make you an elder unless you can get the sick healed. Like it is a requirement to be an elder in his church. And I kind of love that, honestly, because it puts into perspective, what is our job right now? And it takes the pressure off the sick person because let me tell you, if you have been struggling with illness, it's actually really hard to pray the prayer of faith for yourself. You can, and it's great. And I'm glad if you're mature, because that's the first thing it says, if are you suffering, pray. But if you're sick and you pray and nothing happens, don't get discouraged, don't beat yourself up, go to the elders. And if you've got compassionate elders, like I know we have around here, they can stand in strength for you and pray the prayer of faith. And it doesn't matter how discouraged you've been. It doesn't matter if this thing that you've been wrestling with has actually put up a barrier between you and God. And that's the reason why you actually feel so ashamed that you can't go to the elders of the church because you, you have this pang in your heart. And look at this though. It says, the prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. And then after that, it addresses sin. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. It takes care of healing first. You encounter the love of God first. And it so witnesses the nature and the character of God to your heart that now all of a sudden I feel brave enough to share my sin with this loving God who just healed my body before we took care of business, really. And in that posture, I, I can actually come to him free and clear and say, you know, I've got this stuff going on. If he could do this for my body, would he do this for my heart and my mind and my soul? That's the heart of God. That's why we started with verse 12, because it's talking about God has no desire to judge you and punish you. That's the stuff that we actually bring on ourselves. But if we'll come to him in our moment of suffering, if we'll come to him in our moment of need and just let him be who he is to us, then the prayer of faith will save the sick person. And, and look at this in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A lot of times we mash those two sentiments together as if you can't get healed unless you've confessed your sin. And it's not what it says. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. That idea is connected to the previous verse. If he has any sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of faith will heal the sick. It's, he doesn't add any qualifiers to that. He doesn't add any disclaimers to that. He just says it so simply and plainly. The prayer of faith will heal the sick. So I have a question for you. How do you know if you've prayed the, the prayer of faith? What, somebody just said it. Say it loud. Are they healed? Exactly. Did the sick get healed? If yes, you prayed the prayer of faith. Well done. <laughs> if no, you haven't prayed the prayer of faith yet. Right? And Oh man, that idea is so offensive to the carnal mind because the carnal mind is self-protecting. The carnal mind doesn't want to have to examine what's going on. And honestly, the, the carnal mind has been so 
racked with pain. And everybody's experienced loss. Most people don't stop praying for the sick because they've never seen somebody healed. They stop praying for the sick because they lost someone important to them. And it was so painful that it's, it's hard to put your hope there again, right? And so rather than get honest before God and say, God, I, I know I didn't pray the prayer of faith. Would you grow me? We actually put up walls and say, well, there must be something else going on. Jesus made a similar statement. If you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be uprooted and thrown into the sea and it will move. So how do you know if you had faith like a mustard seed? Did the mountain move? But, but when we approach that idea and just let it say what it says, there's always this, well, you can't tell me we didn't pray the prayer of faith for Sister Susie. We had the prayer chain going. We had, we had uh, Brother Donaldson came in, and that man prays the prayer of faith, and you can't tell me we didn't have faith. And it's like, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that you didn't pray with passion. I'm not saying that you didn't pray with hope. I'm not saying that you didn't pray with belief in your heart that Jesus heals the sick. But there is something, um, what's, I'm blanking out on his name right now. John G. Lake used to say that the, 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 the way that God works is almost mechanical. It's like the physics of heaven are going to work as reliably and actually more reliably than the physics of this world. And if you pray the prayer of faith, the sick will get healed every time. If you have faith like a mustard seed, the mountain will move every time. And the point is not that you should get self-deprecating and beat yourself up when you miss the mark and you suffer a loss. The point is that in relationship, you go to Jesus and you say, God, my results didn't look like yours today and I need you to work on my heart and grow me. And I'm so sad because I just lost a loved one. My, I'll be vulnerable right now. My wife and I were in the process this year of adopting a baby. And our birth mom miscarried the baby. And, but I can stand here before you and say, it's not in my heart or in my mind at all that Jesus doesn't create miracle babies in people's wombs that Jesus doesn't raise the dead after a woman has miscarried. I've seen it over and over and over again. But I know in that situation, there were factors in there, and I'm not guilt, I don't feel guilty about it. I just have to be vulnerable with God and say, God, would you come, come tend to these places in my heart that are suffering right now? Tend to these places in my heart that are so wounded and hurting right now so that when somebody comes to me and stands in front of me and they are experiencing that pain of loss and that pain of death, I can take their hands and say, I know a God that raises the dead. See, what faith does is faith refuses to change the subject because of our experience. We have a tendency to read the word like this. And here's my experience. And I can't see anything in the word into my experience. But the truth is that faith takes your experience, which is real and still hurts 
And it says, I will make you subject to the word of God. Yeah. And I will give the word of God supremacy over my experience. Yes. So good. I will let the word of God rule and reign over the things that have happened to me. And I promise you, if you do that, if you do that, your experiences will start to change. Yeah, when I first started praying for the sick, I didn't see people healed all the time. But I caught a glimpse of it in here, and I'd seen just enough to know that it was real. And I decided to throw my plan B out. And I'm going to live like this is true for the rest of my life. And if I never see anyone healed, it actually doesn't give me permission to stop praying for the sick. Because Jesus said in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. What did he command them? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, freely you've received, freely give. It's baked in. And Mark's gospel, Mark 16, actually makes it explicit. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. That's the believer's inheritance, right? The prayers of a righteous man avail much. I've been covered in the righteousness of Christ and now I carry that righteousness out to places and situations that have not been made right yet. And it's my job to take the hands of a sick person and say, I know the one who does this, be healed, right? And that is what ties us all the way back into James chapter one. If you'll flip back with me for a second. James chapter one, verse six, let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So how do I pray the prayer of faith? I have to get single-minded about the will of God. If I don't know that it's God's will to heal the sick, and I take somebody's hands and I'm wondering, God, do you want to do this or not? Well, guess what? I'm double-minded by default. Do they, are you going to heal? Are you not going to heal? Is this your will? Is it not your will? And actually, all of those other pet theologies that we build in, like, do they have a generational curse? Do they not have a generational curse? Do they have unrepentant sin? Do they not have unrepentant sin? That builds in double-mindedness into your prayers. And if I will simplify and remember that Psalm 103 tells me, do not forget all of his benefits. He forgives all of your sin and he heals all of your diseases. Now I can be single-minded. What is God's will for sin? To forgive it. What is God's will for sickness? To heal it. I know what God's will is. And now I can take your hands with confidence and say, be healed in Jesus' name. And so I read this word right now to get single-minded about the will of God. And then once I understand it up here, I follow through with my actions because faith without works is dead. I have to start acting like this is true. I have to start acting like I believe that the prayer of faith heals the sick. And we, you know, elders, yes, that's a, that's a title that some people around here wear. You have elders in this church, right? But it's not just about that. It, it, it's, it's the who's mature in the house 
if you're struggling and sick, go to somebody who's mature and let them pray for you. And then if you've got sin in your life, confess it to them. And then you'll walk out healed and you'll walk out totally free. But if I'm double-minded about that, then I can't pray the prayer of faith. Thankfully, God's gracious and he actually draws us into single-mindedness, you know, when we don't deserve it. But he actually wants us in this to represent him well and stand on our own two legs, right? I love the moments, we were talking about it last night some. I love the moments where you feel something of the presence of God and God clues you in. He's about to do something awesome. But when I pray for the sick, I almost never feel anything. I have friends that get hot hands and electricity and all this stuff. And I think that's so cool. And there's times when I'm like, man, that'd be rad. But when I pray for the sick, what I cling to is God, I know that your word works. I know that your word never returns void. And if I will just apply it and be single-minded about it, then it will work for me and it will work for this person. And so I don't, I don't normally, I'll get words of knowledge sometimes, but that's not, I would say words of knowledge is probably 1% of the people that I pray for who are sick, you know? I don't need a word of knowledge. If you're walking around with a boot, right? I don't need a word of knowledge. You have a boot. What I need in my heart is compassion. What I need in my mind is to recognize God wants to heal you. And and God used to do this to me when I was first learning this stuff. As I would see somebody in a boot and he would say, what would you do? God would say this to me. And I don't know why God talks to me in complete sentences and other people he gives a feeling or like my wife gets pictures. She sees pictures. He just talks to me in complete sentences. And he says things like, what would you do if you knew for sure that one of the next 10 people you prayed for would get healed? And my answer would be, I'd go pray for that guy. But I would still be unsure and I would sit there. (laughs) And then he would, it was like, you remember when Abraham bargained with God and he was like, if there's a hundred righteous people in the city, will you spare it? If there's 50 righteous people, what about 40? What about 30? And he talks God all the way down to 10, right? Well, God did that with me in reverse. He starts asking me, what if one in the next 100 people you prayed for would get healed, what would you do? I'd go out today and find 100 people because somebody will get healed today. I could find 100 people with something wrong, right? What about if you knew that one of the next thousand people you prayed for would get healed, what would you do? And this was the answer that came out of my mouth back to God. I would go to the hospital and find the thousand sickest people I could find because one person gets to walk out and it'd be worth it. And then he would just sit there in silence and wait for me, not telling me what to do. Actually, he's already given me enough instruction right here, but he would let me sit with those questions And then finally, I'd be like, okay, yeah, all right. I'll go pray for the guy with the boot, right? (laughs) And you would think that my prayer in that moment would be double-minded because I've had all these competing thoughts with it. But what did I do? I followed it up with action. 
I followed it up with action and my action got real single-minded, right? And what if, this is the idea I'd like to propose to you today. What if great faith is not some volume or measure or quality of faith, what if great faith is like what James has been talking about the whole time since chapter one? What if great faith is just enduring faith? Faith that refuses to change the subject. Faith that says, if at first I don't see it, I'm not gonna change my theology to accommodate my experience. I'm gonna let the word say what it says and I'm just gonna act like it's true forever. And if I've suffered a loss, guess what? The next person I find, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay steady in this until my experiences look like Jesus's experiences because I've been tasked with growing up into him in every way, is what the scripture says. And so I, now my quiet time looks a little bit different because I'm asking God to come and work on me. And then I'm going out and I'm putting into, into practice and I'm allowing him to take me on this journey of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And when I experience testimonies, I celebrate them with him in worship. And when I experience losses, I take it back to him and I can't blame him anymore. I just recognize God, I'm growing and you've already perfectly accounted for my growth trajectory, so I'm not guilty. I'm not beating myself up about it, but I still recognize Bill Johnson has great language for this. He says, God, that person came to me for an encounter with you and all they got was me. And that's not enough. So do whatever you need to do in me so that the next time they come, they get an encounter with you. And that's, that's gotta be the prayer of our life as disciples of Jesus. Jesus, I must look like you. You've covered me with your righteousness and the prayer of a righteous person is supposed to be very effective. Teach me how to pray effectively. That's why I love you, that you guys are doing the prayer room because you're figuring out that prayer is not just a request line, right? You're not calling up DJ Jesus, play that one, right? You're actually just coming in and soaking in his presence and letting him sing over you whatever he wants to sing. And if I follow that up with my behavior consistently, why do we pray for cancer different than we pray for backache? Because we're double-minded. We actually have to learn to get single-minded about it and recognize that it's no more difficult for Jesus to heal cancer than it is to heal uh, a skin's knee. <laughs> actually, I get terrified when people ask me things like, would you pray for this? you know, kids, cuts and scrapes and boo-boos, right? I'm like, I've actually seen cancer healed a bunch. Like, you have a cut, and my default, my carnal mind says, that's little, it'll heal on its own. But to a kid, that's their world. And they want you to pray the prayer of faith, right? Actually, the first time I preached healing for kids, I, was, I asked my wife, how am I gonna, I always do demonstration. But kids are not as sick as adults are. Right? And so who are we gonna pray for at the end of the message? And she said, well, every kid has cuts and scrapes and boo-boos, why don't you pray for that? And I got more afraid of that than I was about, I was like, oh man. But I knew she was right and we did it. And I had these kids pray for each other 
And they watched Jesus erase cuts and scrapes and boo-boos off of each other. And the whole room just started screaming. And guess what? I got a little bit more single-minded that day, right? But it comes as I participate with God in action. Notice that in James 5, he says that Elijah was a man just like you, just like me. He was a human being. And yet when he prayed, the sky shut up for three and a half years. And when he prayed three and a half years later, it opened up and it rains. But if you go back to 1 Kings 18, I believe, and actually read, Elijah has this moment with the prophets of Baal where God comes and the pillar of fire and all of that, all, that whole scene. And then he tells Ahab, go to your dining hall. I hear the sound of rain. So it's not raining yet. It's still drought times. But he says, I hear the sound of rain. And then what does he do? He goes up on top of a mountain and it says he sat there and he put his face between his knees. And so Elijah is sitting there like this. That's an intense prayer posture. And he sits there and prays and he tells his servant, go to the top of the mountain and tell me what you see. Are there any rain clouds? And his servant goes up the mountain and says, no, I don't see anything. And so Elijah prays again, go again. And the servant goes up again and he comes back and says, I don't see anything. Now, this is about the time that we would start changing our theology. I thought I heard God's voice, but I guess I didn't because it pray, I prayed and it didn't happen. It must not have been God's will because we prayed and it didn't happen. But Elijah didn't stick with his experience. He stuck with the, the sound he heard. And it says he prayed seven times. And on the seventh prayer, his servant comes back and says, I see a cloud is about the size of a man's hand. And again, that would be the time that we would say, this is not working. <laughs> but Elijah sees the cloud the size of a man's hand, and he says, go tell Ahab to get out because it's going to flood where he's at. And he knew, I have, I have a, I've caught a glimpse of where God is going. And then the Spirit of God comes on Elijah, and he out, actually outruns Ahab's chariots in that moment. And it starts to downpour. But that's a demonstration of what the prayer of faith looks like. The prayer of faith didn't give up the first six times that it didn't get any results. The prayer of faith didn't change its theology or start to question whether or not I understood that right or heard the voice of God. You know how many times I've prayed for people in public because I had some inkling, some sense. I went, man, I prayed for this barista at Starbucks in Indianapolis one time. I was preaching at a friend's, or leading worship at a friend's church, and then went to Starbucks on my way home. And I saw this girl, y'all know who Christine Kane is, the preacher? When I saw this girl, I, I saw her like Christine Kane standing on a platform preaching. <laughs> 
And I was like, wow, that girl is anointed. And I went up to her and I said, hey, this might be a strange question. Are you by any chance a Christian? And she said, no. And I was like, well, when I walked in, I'm a Christian and, and sometimes I see pictures of people's lives and I saw that God has given you a voice that's gonna matter to people. And the words that are gonna come out of your mouth are gonna speak to actually crowds of people and it'll, it'll change their lives. She goes, okay, what can I get for you? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then I walked out thinking, did I miss something, right? Because that didn't seem very effective. But I show up a month later to lead worship for that church again. And five people went into that Starbucks that day and told her the same thing. And on the fifth one, she decided, where are you people from? And she came to church and gave her life to Jesus. And I tell you that story because it's so common to step out in faith and take a risk and say, what happened? I thought you said you were going to catch me if I leave, you know? I stepped out of the boat and I'm sinking. What is going on? But you don't know what God does when you just show up and participate in his plan. You don't know what God happened, what God does when faith ceases to be an intellectual ascent. And it's like, God, I'm throwing plan B out and I'm gonna live like this is true for the rest of my life, regardless whether I see anybody healed. And like I said at the beginning, this is not really a message about healing. It's a message about the kingdom. If we would just catch a glimpse that this is how the kingdom works. If you take these principles and apply them to your finances, your finances will work. I used to get stressed out over car trouble because it's like, it's expensive and after I pay for it, I don't get anything new. I have the same old car, right? It's annoying and it would stress me out because it would put a dent in our bank account. And one time I had a transmission light come on and I was like, oh no. And I take it to the shop just hoping, like, this is just a computer error, right? And he's like, no, this is $6,000. But guess what? At that point in my life, God had been so faithful to me, even in the area of car trouble. It's like he had proven himself over and over and over again that I actually felt like, God, if I don't trust you with this right now, it's actually a sin. Like, I wouldn't have said that in round one, but I'm on like round 12 and I should have learned this by now. And so if I don't put, if I don't actually trust what you've carried me through, Paul writes, anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. So I knew, I, I have a choice here. How do I back this up with action? Because faith without works is dead. And so I thought, this is gonna cost $6,000. That means I need $6,000 to come from somewhere. And if it's gonna come in, I might as well tithe on it already. And so I just put six, uh, talk with my wife, we put $600 in the offering as if it had already come in, right? And the next week, we got a check in the mail that had no strings attached to it. 
It was just a check from somebody. And you would think that the check would be for $6,000. It was for $30,000. I could have bought a new car, right? And I don't say that to, to, because people get squeamish and weird about money. That's not the point. The point is, if you apply the principles of the kingdom, not, see, my motive wasn't, I'm going to make a buck off of this. My motive was I actually trust that God is going to supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And if he's going to do that, then I can go ahead in advance and tithe because I trust him, right? One time we had a, a, a young woman that rented a room in our house. And about the third month that she was late on her rent, I sat her down and I said, tell me what's going on with your finances. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I, I don't want, I'm, I'm working really hard. I'm, I, I, I just don't have enough. And I, I'm so sorry. Like, and I was like, look, I, I understand. I'm not fussing at you, but, but tell me this. Are you tithing? She's oh man, I've been wanting to. So I can't even pay my rent on time. Like I, I want to, and there's just not enough left over. And I said, well, can you make me a promise I don't ever want you to pay your rent again unless you've already tithed because don't do that to me. Like, don't take from God what belongs to him to pay me. I don't ever want you to do that. So don't even worry about rent unless you've tithed. And number two, I want you to tithe for the next six months. And if your financial situation hasn't improved after six months, I will personally repay you what you put in the offering. Well, part of that was like, I knew how much money she made and it wasn't that much, right? <laughs> but also I was so sure because I've watched it work over and over and over again. It's the one thing in the Bible that God says, test me in this and see if I won't open up the storehouses of heaven, right? And so I had faith, you know, and, and see, that was the kingdom principle. She didn't have faith. She was like the sick person that comes to the elders, right? And says, I'm sick. And I looked at the situation and said, I, I know, oh, she hasn't experienced this yet. But I can take the risk and the burden off of her shoulders. And I can have faith on her behalf. And within a month, she had two jobs, not one job. And she was never late paying her rent ever again. And she's never gone back to that place financially. But what if, we, what if we actually looked at people with compassion, had compassion this way and faith that way, and we just let our actions back it up? We would see the movement of God like we've never seen it before. The revival starts here. We can pray for revival all we want, but unless we go out and take the hands of a sick person Unless we go out and share the gospel with a coworker who needs to hear the gospel. But for some reason, we're so afraid to do that because we're actually focused on how embarrassing this is going to be. And now I'm double-minded. And I should expect nothing from God. But if I just decide, okay, carnal mind, you're there, I hear you, but I'm going to put you over here, and me and my actions are going to be single-minded about this. God will move again and again and again and again. 
So I wonder, in this moment, can we again just posture our hearts back to Jesus? Because he's the source. He's invited us into his world. This natural world doesn't work the way that we're talking about. And if there's something in your heart that it feels like what I have been today is a grain of sand in your gears and it's just sort of messed you up a little bit, will you let the Lord actually tend to that place in your heart? Would you be vulnerable and honest with him this morning? And I'm not gonna call you out. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I think you know who you are. And I would just invite you in this, in this place to say, God, my spirit man knows that what he's saying is true but my mind and my emotions and even my body has a reaction to it. And I wanna yield that to you today because I actually see the promise that you've put in your word and I wanna participate in it. I don't wanna be a, the kind of person that says I believe something and, and doesn't follow it through with my actions. I don't wanna be the kind of person that's defined by hurts and losses. I don't wanna be the kind of person who takes the hardest moment of my life and lets that moment define me. Because, I mean, that's real life. That's what we do. I could have the choice after walking through what my wife and I just walked through to not pray for the sick anymore because it's too painful to say, oh, this reminds me too much of what I lost. But I, I, I have an eternal mindset that sees that I have a daughter in heaven and I'll get to spend all of eternity with her. And I have this blink of an eye of time here on earth. And if I can give Jesus a fragrant offering here in the middle of all this confusion and pain and sorrow and suffering, I'll never get the chance to do that there because there won't be any pain and confusion and sorrow and suffering there. I only get to do that here. And so here in this place, God, I'm gonna be single-minded about what you've said and I'm gonna stand up, I'm gonna... I'm gonna let you carry me in your love. I'm gonna let you tend to the wounds in my heart. The place that it feels like my, my personhood, my soul, my being got pierced with sorrow. But I'm gonna recognize that you got pierced with sorrow. You could have stood aloof and beyond and above. And you could have looked down on us in our human plight that we did to ourselves and you could have fussed at us and scolded us from that place. And yet, Jesus, you came down and you entered into human suffering. You were never aloof to it. You came in all the places that we have sorrowed and you allowed yourself, even though you didn't deserve it, to be pierced on our behalf. You took the injustices of the world upon yourself and actually bore them as a punishment. That's the Jesus that we serve. Could we yield to that Jesus and allow him to touch the places of sorrow in our hearts today? He's the man of sorrows. He can perfectly understand what's going on in your heart and in your mind. So Jesus, come and, come and bind up the brokenhearted here this morning. God, James chapter one tells us that if it is anyone of you undergoing a trial, let him have 
endurance. Endurance produces faith. God, help us to have enduring faith. I want to be a person who's known for great faith, but I've come to discover Jesus that great faith most of the time looks like I've planted my hope in you and I'm just not gonna veer to the left or the right because I've caught a glimpse of true north and I'm gonna pursue it for the rest of my life. God, let that be our legacy. And if he has sin, they will be forgiven. God, thank you for that promise. If that's you in the room and you've heard me talk about this hope of a world that works upside down from the injustice and the pain of this world, if you've heard me talk about sin, maybe like you haven't heard somebody talk about before, because I don't have an ounce of judgment about it. I just know that that's why Jesus died, is to rescue us from that. And this, you know, in a small room like this, it might be one, it might be nobody, but it's always worth it to me. Jesus said, if you will acknowledge me in front of people, I will acknowledge you in front of my Father in heaven. So most of the time, when we get to this moment, I don't tell everybody to bow their head and close their eyes. Because I know that if you will stand up and let faith become an action in your life that actually gets looked upon, it will mark you and the presence of God will mark you. And Jesus Christ will stand up next to the Father and say, Father, that one's mine. That one's covered in righteousness. And guess what? From now on, their prayers get to be very effective. And if that's you and you know in your heart today that you're not right with Jesus, but you wanna be, you know in your heart that Jesus hasn't been the Lord of your life. Actually, sin has been running your life or you have been running your life, which is the same thing. And you're ready to surrender to him. Well, then I just want you to, on the count of three, stand up. And I'm not gonna labor this point. I'm not gonna drag it out. I'm just gonna let it be what it is. And if it's one, great. If it's zero, great. If it's 20, awesome. So on the count of three, if that's you and you wanna get right with Jesus, just stand up. One, two, three, stand Thanks, Jesus. And see, right now, what he does is he just tends to that place. You can here, stay standing. And see, everybody knows you. People are like, what about her? What's, what's going on? But she's discovered something about the mercy of Jesus is that I can come to him again and again and again and again and again, and he just washes me clean. She's caught a glimpse of Jesus, I want the results of my life to look like the results of your life. And that involves walking clean and righteous in front of you. And she said, I'm gonna do this in front of everybody. And the heart of Jesus is never to embarrass you. The heart of Jesus is to say, look, this is what I do for people. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. He actually treats this moment that feels like guilt, maybe a pang of shame, and he treats it as an opportunity to say, good job, good job. Anybody wanna get in on that? Just stand up, yeah.
Thanks, Jesus. Thanks, God. Yeah. Thanks, Jesus. Can you feel? I can feel his presence here. He's so kind. He's, he's generous. Thanks, Jesus. Jesus, you're the object of our affection. God, that's what it's about is that if, if for a moment I've let my love grow cold, I am so sorry. Just like we sang, come and fan the flame, the coals of our hearts, and let us burn again for you. That's what we want. That's what we're asking for. I get the honor and the privilege of sons and daughters, the sins that you were reminded of that made you stand and say, I got to take care of business this morning. Your sins are forgiven. And God casts them as far as the east is from the west and he remembers them no more. And the next time you try to bring it up and talk about it, he'll say, huh? Because <laughs> that's how good he is. And so you get to run to him and you get to run to the world around you and know that the prayers of a righteous man are very effective because you, you stood up and took care of business today. And now you can have a real expectation. It's not that you're entitled, it's that he told you and he's entitled to whatever he says, right? You can take somebody's hands and say, be healed in Jesus' name and watch the word of God be very effective. You guys can be seated. Are there, any, are there any SCAD students in the room? Can you wave at me if there's a, a SCAD? There's a handful. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. What I'm about to say is not an automatic. And there's no... It, it, it would actually be worthy of taking home and pondering it with the Lord. And actually, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to turn this into a moment where I lay hands on you and, and because this is actually something that I want you to, to take before the Lord and I want you to give the Lord your yes. I don't need you to give me a yes. But as I was standing down here in worship, I saw that God is, I saw God's intent for SCAD. And I love that SCAD has buildings just sort of scattered all over the city and he wants, he wants revival to spread like wildfire through those buildings. He wants it very much. And it's, he just, he wields everything, the natural, the things the enemy does, he wields everything to his benefit. And it's strategic to him that there's, it's not just one located campus, it's throughout the city. And he wants people who are willing to say, yes, I'll carry that into my school, I'll carry that into the halls where my friends are. But the reason why I'm not gonna put you on the spot right now is that he showed me it's gonna be so costly. Yeah. And if you say yes, and you allow him to do that in your life, you will experience something of what Jesus experienced and you will love a people who will not love you back. And man, it will affect many, many lives. And 
you will get the honor and the privilege of rescuing people from death into life. But maybe nobody will know your name. And I, and I, I don't want to, it's not a, this is not a doom and gloom message, but like the, the core of how SCAD operates is never going to get behind this. People will. People who are hungry and thirsty, weary, they will. But SCAD's never going to endorse revival, right? And I'm not saying that to, to diminish anybody's faith in the room. I, I, I can just see that God is capable of doing the, 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 the wave of revival that we think about real revival without needing the, the official endorsement of an institution. The, inst, the institution is actually hostile towards God. That's what he showed me. That institution is hostile towards him. But he loves the people so much that he's willing to, to go to the people. But the institution will actually be hostile towards you. And the more effective your ministry is, the more effective you get at sharing your faith with your friends, the more effective you get at praying for the sick and people start to stand up and take notice, it's an institution that will be hostile towards you. And so that's why I'm saying, like, be, be sober-minded about this, you know, because I, I love revival. I'm a rah-rah revival guy. But if that's you and you feel like there's something on the inside of you that just is like, yes, that's me. That's what I want. I don't care about anything else. And I'm, I want to encourage you, whether it's alone or it's in the prayer set or whatever, that you actually communicate with God and say, God, will you, will you let me catch a glimpse of some of that suffering? That's actually what Jesus did to Paul. Um, who was it that laid his hands on him so he could see again? What's his name? Ananias. He said, go to Paul because I have to show him how much he'll suffer for my name, right? And that's this moment. Like, get alone with the Lord and make a sober-minded decision. Jesus actually said, count the cost. No one starts building a tower if they don't have the materials to finish it. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do. Count the cost. But then I would implore you, oh, don't, don't walk away from this. Give him your yes. Yeah. Give him your yes. And when you do, he will take that yes and he will do things with it that you can hardly fathom. And it will be so freaking hard. But your whole life you will know, I said yes to him. And look what he, and there's no shame. If you're like, that sounds scary and I don't know if I'm there yet. That's fine. That's why he says, don't make oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And it's okay if you say, that sounds like not the season of life I'm in. I'm here to learn fashion. And that's okay. But if you want your yes to be yes in that department, get alone with the Lord. And then once you've decided that, tell someone. Tell someone like Gunter so that he can be praying for you. Tell someone because Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. It's his pattern. And go 
bring the presence of God into every classroom. It doesn't mean that you have to be combative in that space. You get to love your school even when they don't love you back. Man. Well, Gunner, can I just crash land and I'm done? Is that good? All right. Come, come pray us out. <laughs> Great. It's good stuff, huh? Yeah. There you are. I'm more single-minded, having heard that. How about you? Um, what we're going to do is, uh, how about the elders come up? <laughs> and, uh, and we'll have some ministry time. So if you're sick in your body, mind, whatever that is, uh, you've probably already been stirred by the Lord to come receive prayer. So we're going to end service, a soft ending, and uh, if you want to come receive prayer, please do that. And also, um, if you do stay for prayer, please go get your kids first and bring them back in here. And somebody, you know, this family, we'll, we'll watch them while you get prayer, okay? All right, let's all stand. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness, for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for grace. We thank you that we're walking in it as we leave this place. Amen. Amen. Y'all have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information about The Dwelling, visit thedwellingchurch.org.